Broadcast out of New York City, you're listening to Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network on Monday, January 19th, 2015. I'm Dr. Lynn Saputo. And I'm registered nurse Vicki Saputo. Thank you for joining us on Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network. All of our shows are available 24-7 on prn.fm and drsaputo.com. Today you'll hear Nurse Vicki's 2020 health tips at 20 after and 20 to the hour. And we've got another great show for you today that's going to include What Does Your Doctor Worry About? And Does Your Doctor Listen to You? And Is Getting Cancer Simply Bad Luck? Do biopsies spread cancer? And what are the unmet needs of cancer survivors? When you or a loved one is sick and you're worried about it, how often do you think what your doctor might be worried about? Right. A recent study of 21,000 doctors investigated some of their toughest ethical dilemmas, which exposed common feelings that they often have concerning life and death situations with their patients. And there are many concerns that can include suspecting abuse and honoring confidentiality, uh, maybe pressure from patients for treatments that they don't need, dealing with impaired colleagues, keeping brain-dead patients alive at the family's request. And then what about ethics such as assisted suicide? There's so much more. Well, you really want to know what's on your doctor's mind because it makes a big difference in how he or she treats you and what kinds of tests will be done and how much time they'll give you and whether or not what you think is going to, is going to have an impact in, in what they're going to do. You know, I don't think a lot of people think about this, but yeah. I think that patients need to uh, interview their doctors. Absolutely. And realize that they're the boss, not the doctor. Well, medicine has become more of a business than it has been a service. And Patient empowerment is really going down the tubes. There's, it's it's really a huge issue. And, to, and in today's medicine where time is money and doctors aren't allowed a lot of time to spend with their patients, it makes a big difference about who that doctor is and, and how they relate to you and how much time they'll have and how well they'll listen to you. All these are factors that determine if you're going to get satisfied from the relationship that you have with this person that's going to be helping you make decisions that are major life uh, issues. I was talking to somebody not too long ago that she couldn't even really remember the name of her doctor. Oh, my God. And she didn't like her doctor. And mm. because um, she didn't want to do the treatment that he suggested, he told her that she needed to get her affairs in order. Yeah, I remember. That. I know the case. And... And what this person needs, because we know her fairly well, is to be heard. She's scared to death that she's going to die. And then the doctor pro- makes a proclamation that if she doesn't get uh, She doesn't the do what he suggests. Yeah, that that, that that is going to be what's going to kill her. And, and maybe it's true, but frankly, as I looked over the case, I thought, well, there are some options here that could be entertained. And we should really be trying to serve what the patient's desires are as well as what their medical needs are. And then on the other hand, there are doctors that really do care about their patients. And some oh, of them sure. take the, the problems home with them and maybe even pray for their patients and, <laughs> and, and do a little extra research and that kind of thing. But what were some of the statistics on, on this? Well, first of all, this was published in WebMD, okay? So it's a mainstream look at this. 
And as you said, there were 21,000 doctors and this was that were interviewed that responded. And it was published in, in December of 2014. And, and when they looked at things like, when is it right to pull the plug? About 19% of, of doctors felt that they should support the patient with life-saving measures, even if there wasn't much of a chance of survival. 46% uh, uh, said it depends on the situation. About 50% uh, didn't necessarily respect the family wishes, and another 50% thought that assisted suicide was okay. This is why I think everybody needs to have, uh, isn't, don't you call it a living will? I'm not sure what the, I, I don't think that's what it is. Well, whatever it is, something like that. Mm-hmm. But, but when you go to the hospital that you filled out forms about what you want. Exactly. If, you're in, if you happen to be in that situation, how far you want them to go to sustain you. Well, it gets even more difficult for the doctor because what happens when everything changes? And you're, you're not looking at it as a distant event in the future, but you're actually in the middle of what's happening. Would your opinion about what you want be the same at that time? It might not be. So doctors are really saddled with a challenge here of trying to make very important decisions and have it go, have it, have it satisfy their particular moral views as well as the patients and their families. And it's not necessarily an easy thing. And sometimes the doctors worry if they've made the correct diagnosis or if they've oh, for sure. suggested the best treatment. I think and- doctors in general, particularly those that are in the hospital, but I think doctors in general are very interested in what happens to their patients, and they want to do what's right. The problem that I see is it's not the doctors that are the problem, never has been. It's the system. Yeah, it's the way the system works and how we're trained and what our values are. Uh, I mean, let's face it, doctors primarily are thinking of drugs, surgeries, and technologies. And and a lot of it's impersonal. It's It's wanting to do the right thing. It's not necessarily taking into account the person's feelings about what's happening uh, and knowing what, what they want. Do they want to do what's right? Do they want to do what feels good? And do doctors respect the family's wishes or do they do what they think is right? Well, sometimes. I, I mean, you try to do all those things as a doctor. I spent 35 years working in the intensive care unit and in the coronary care unit and the special units as well as had a large inpatient practice. So I, I know what goes through the minds what went through my mind and what I thought was going through the minds of my colleagues. And we always want to do the best thing. And, it, and we're thinking of the patient. I'm not thinking of the patient's family as the first thing, but I am thinking of that too. I'm not thinking of what my colleagues will think as the first thing, but I'm thinking of that as well. I'm not thinking about what my medical board will do as the first thing, but it's a factor that enters into the equation. So it becomes a monumental task or uh, effort that you have to resolve when it's complicated. And when somebody's life is at stake, everybody can get up in arms about what you're doing. And you can't please everybody all of the time. So it's, it's a matter of using your, the knowledge that you have, the wisdom that you've learned, and applying that to the best interest of your patient and hoping that when you do that, that you're not going to get into trouble with either the family and, and attorneys or your medical board, the hospital administration, or your colleagues. And then there's the question, too, like if there's a medical error. You know, oh. some, some doctors are afraid to admit it. Well, I mean, because who would want to admit they, sure, yeah. who would admit they, they may want to admit it? I think 
I admit it when I do, and I'm very forthright about it up front. If I've done something that turns out to be a a test that wasn't necessary or I made a, a judgment that was wrong about what this person has, I can remember just a couple of weeks ago I had a patient who had lots of emotional problems, and the relationship he had with his family was very compromised. And I felt that the symptoms that this person had uh, were really psychological as the primary thing. But to be complete, I went ahead and I ordered some tests that would cover the basis to see if this was something that could be like chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia or Lyme or some other or cancer that was occult. And sure enough, some of the tests came back positive. I called the, the family in with the patient. The first thing I said is, I want to apologize to you for making a judgment about what I thought was right. And just because... Why, what, did you, what was your judgment? I thought it was mostly psychological. Oh, okay. And while I think there are still psychological factors there, I, I admitted that my judgment was presumptive. And just because uh-huh. I've had a lot of experience and I thought that was the, the right thing to make the diagnosis for uh-huh. this person wasn't right as, as an entire diagnosis. So I said, I will be on your team. We will follow these tests up. I'll, t- I'll work with you on them so that you understand them, and we'll see where that takes us. But on the other hand, I want to look at the whole person, and I don't want to just do laboratory testing and try to be academic about solving this problem, although I know that's what you would prefer. I would like to look at the whole situation, and what I asked that person to do was write an autobiography for me about their physical health from birth to now, so you were still their going emotional to... health from birth to now, and their spiritual health from birth to now. So you were still going to focus on the psychological issues. I was going to focus on what the person wanted first, which is to do the tests, uh-huh. but also look at the whole person. And that's what this gets into when you're in difficult situations in the hospital a lot of the time. And you don't always have the luxury of enough time to say, would you write me an autobiography, please? So as an outpatient... That's what I do when I try to look at the whole person. And as I said, when I find myself making a mistake in judgment, I come right out and say it. I've changed my mind. These tests show that there's something going on here. We need to focus on what you want. And this is how I would propose doing it. What do you think of that? Mm -hmm. And they loved it. Well, that's great. I can see why they would. And also because you were forthright with, you know, coming up. It works the best. Most lawsuits occur when there's an adversarial relationship between the patient or their family and the doctor, and when they don't listen to the other, to the side of the story that the family believes in, it's really important to listen. And we're going to talk about that later because it's such an important uh, aspect of meeting that person's needs. They need to be comfortable to know that you have heard what they have to say. You know what they want. And then you work with them in a way where you work together as a team. And you're pitching in from all aspects of what that care requires, which is physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. This uh, article or this study also pointed out other things that (laughs) doctors can worry about. Uh, One of them is even a decision whether to try a placebo or not. Oh, yeah. Well, as that turned out, 42% of of the doctors agreed that they might try a placebo in some settings. 37% said they wouldn't, and a few were in the middle. Now, that's an interesting situation because is it really right to do something to a patient like this uh, when it's not being clean with them and, and honest with them about what you're doing? 
And I think it really depends on the situation. If somebody wants something, a, a pill of some kind, and you know that it's not necessary, I probably would just draw a line there and say, I'm not going to prescribe this pill for you because I don't think it's the right thing. And I, and I know you're the boss from the point of view that you've hired me and I'm your employee. So but would you I, tell them to go to another doctor to get it? No, I would just tell them I'm not going to do it. But if they wanted to get it, they would go someplace else. I think that's fair enough. But if you take a situation like with antidepressants, when we know that the effect of the SSRI antidepressants, and this is done on 80 different studies mm-hmm. uh, that looked at the published and unpublished studies. See, the problem is is the unpublished studies are ones that usually are paid for by the pharmaceutical industry, and they have they have decided not to publish the ones that show that they, it they doesn't don't like work. Because they like the results. Well, no, because they're a business. And why would they say, hey, we did this study, we spent a, 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 you know, two or three million dollars on it, and guess what? Our drug sucks. You're not going to hear that much because it's a business. But when I know, because I've read the literature on that, that for mild to moderate depression, that antidepressants are no better than placebo, there are times when I'll give my patient a placebo. But I'm also there listening and caring and supporting uh, and being part of a team uh, of counselors that are in their life to try and guide them to feel better without putting them at excessive risk. When I know the literature says that the placebo is as good as the pill, but it doesn't have the side effects and it doesn't cost as much. So in that setting, I would. Also, so, okay, I have another one. Mm-hmm. What about false hope? You know, there's that What's phrase, that? false hope, to yeah. give patients false hope. So like this well, doctor that we were just talking about earlier that told our friend that she needed to just get her affairs in order. Yeah, well, that wasn't, well, that's a weird way of looking at it. That's backwards. That's sort that's of like. That's not false hope. That's just the opposite. Yeah, that's the opposite. That's so, just the opposite. So let's, let's use the example of somebody has cancer. Okay, and they're they, they they are dying from it. They will eventually die from it. Would you want to tell that person, "Oh, we'll get you through this. Don't worry." Well, I think there are variations of that that depend on each person and their personality. Well, and yeah, and it's how you say it, and they probably do need to get their affairs in order just in case. Well, if you look at it that way, that's right. But if you're looking at at what it would be considered false positive hope. I wouldn't say, well, I'm going to, we'll cure you of this. A lot of oncologists do that. They tell their patients at the start, in a disease that's unlikely, quite unlikely to have a survival at five or 10 years, we'll get you through it, just stick with me. And some of that, yes, I think is, is good to have a positive attitude because we know having a positive attitude actually makes the symptoms less and extends survival. So you want to have a positive attitude. And there's a a line there, a boundary between lies and and giving hope to people uh, to try and inspire them to uh, do some of the treatments that you think are better. Well, speaking of lies, what what about um, doctors that upcode treatments to get coverage? Well, I can't blame them, actually, for that. Because I think insurance companies are less interested in providing service than they are in making money. And so they put little tiny clauses in places that you never see when you read the policy because you've got this long policy with little tiny print. And you just sign here because the agent says, well, it's okay. It's just standard procedure. Well, those are, that's another form of a lie, right? And so what happens is sometimes services are denied. Now, if there's something that that can be done to get those services in a setting like that, 
many doctors feel like they'll exaggerate a bit when it comes to the diagnosis. So the patient can have the benefit so of the treatment ex- and have it covered. Exactly. Well, so what, but then on the other hand, what about unneeded procedures? Well, that, that's another interesting situation when, un, when procedures are not necessary and they're done anyway. And by the way, about 2 or 3% of the doctors interviewed said they would do procedures that were unneeded just to make, just money. To make the money. And it was like, Wow, what? they even admitted it. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> so, I mean, to me, that's outrageous. So when there's uh, a treatment that a patient wants that I don't agree with, I won't do it. I mean, somebody says... Uh, they they want a certain drug because they've got a cold and, and uh, it's an antibiotic and they've got some other ideas about what else they might take. I just tell them, look, if you if you want to do those kinds of things, you need to find somebody who will support you with that. But I can't in good conscience do it. So I'm going to tell you no. And I realize that this is a partnership, but there are boundaries in that partnership. And I, and I feel like I need to use my wisdom that I've gathered over all these years to try and make sure that the, that the patients don't harm themselves from treatments that are not necessary and have side effects that are potentially dangerous. So it's a very interesting partnership where sometimes I do what the person wants because it's, it's the right thing for them as long as I feel like it's a positive thing. But if it's not, I'm not going to do something that I think is going to hurt somebody in a way that could be significant. That's just not what I will do. So sometimes it's we don't have a, a mix that's a good one. And I might suggest, you know, I like you. It's been uh, I've, I've enjoyed working with you. You want to do some things here that I can't support. Maybe your best bet is to get a consultation from someone else or go ahead and take your health care there. It's okay with me. Mm-hmm. Well, also, you know, we we're talking about that the doctor's have a lot of concerns about things. They can have concerns about withholding uh, newborns that have medical, disabling medical conditions from the ICU or ethics like assisted suicide or many doctors worry about abortions and there's so many things. But what what about drug abuse? I mean, some doctors, I think, are afraid that if they give them too much pain medicine that they'll become addicted and then they undertreat them when they're hurting. Well, see, you you, you get shafted either way there. I know one very, very good doctor who undertreated his patients who had cancer a little bit, and they had some pain. And he wound up getting sued by the family, lost really? the case. His medical board got after him. Now, look at the other side of it. You go ahead and you start treating, and people are comfortable, and they say, you're over-treating this person. Uh, what happens then? Then you're doing something that might be considered assisted suicide. There's, it takes, it's the relationship that the treating physician has with the patient and the family that determines a lot of the time what's going to happen in terms of a happy outcome. About 9% of doctors undertreated on purpose uh, to avoid addiction and getting in trouble, and 76% said they would never undertreat. So we've got mixed things here. One thing to just to point out here, I guess, is that doctors are not robots and they're humans with feelings and they have to make tough choices. You're absolutely right. This is a, this is a being a doctor requires a lot of flexibility. All right, you're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Saputa here with Nurse Vicki, and it's time for Vicki's first 2020 tip on natural painkillers. And when we come back, we're talking about does your doctor listen to you? like 
to suggest a few natural painkillers. First of all, garlic that can be made into a special oil for for an earache, like mm. in warm olive oil. Mm-hmm. Just a tiny bit of garlic Absolutely. and a little bit of mullein is good. But if you, if you don't have garlic, that, that's okay too. Use too much garlic, it'll actually irritate the skin and cause an ulcer. So it's interesting that just a tiny bit. Yeah, just a tiny bit. And then also cloves are really good for a toothache or Mm. for gum inflammation. Right. And apple cider vinegar is good for heartburn. Mm -hmm. Most people wouldn't think of that. I think a little baking soda could be good for that too. Absolutely. And ginger is good for muscle pain. Mm -hmm. Cherries are good for joint pain and headaches. Mm -hmm. Yum, yum. Yeah. And turmeric is good for chronic pain. (laughs) Peppermint for sore muscles, pineapple for stomach bloating and gas, and of course, water is good just for general injury pain, and horseradish. It's good for sinus pain, but not only that, it clears your sinuses. I'll say. (laughs) And last but not least on my particular list here are blueberries. Blueberries are good for bladder and urinary tract infections. And we just came across a study this week that found that blueberries can reduce your LDL cholesterol if you eat a cup a day. Wow. Now, if you don't want to eat a whole cup a day or you're not that crazy about them, you can eat the equivalent in blueberry powder. It's freeze-dried. So the good news is that foods that taste good can be good for you. I think it's wonderful that, you know, Hippocrates said what he did, let medicine be your food and let food Food be be your your medicine. medicine. And and Mother Nature, you know, we've adapted to her over thousands and thousands of years, and we've had a chance to uh, live in a system where we're taken care of. And... To eat your way through pain or eat your way through some illnesses just makes so much sense. Rather than extracting all these toxic drugs, well, we 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 try to extract the most active ingredient, and sometimes you really need to do that because the, you'd have to eat a truckload of Brussels sprouts, for example, to try and help correct estrogen levels that are off. There are a lot of things that we can do in a little bit of excess beyond what Mother Nature offers, and we can get value when we've gotten sick enough. But when we're just having everyday normal things, if we have a, a, a diet that's got fruits and vegetables, seeds and nuts, herbs and spices, we've really done a lot to take care of our general health needs. That's a great tip, Vicki. Did you hear me? Are you deaf? I told you the same thing a dozen times. Look at me when I talk to you. Sound familiar? Sounds like you're talking to one of the kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, this doesn't just happen in, in, in your personal life. No. I've had so many people complain to me that their doctor doesn't listen or care or pay much attention to them. <laughs> but how awful to be sick and not feel like your doctor cares with his nose in the chart or taking a call oh. during your appointment. Oh, yeah. You can tell a story about that one, can't you? Well, I've I've told it before. I don't mind telling it again. It's a, that it's I a great took, story. Took that my, I took my dad to the doctor, and I was with both of my parents. And the doctor walked in and turned his back to us and opened up the chart on the little counter thing there and never looked at us at all. And I knew him. <laughs> and I'm like, hi, Joe. <laughs> oh, it's you, Vicky. He, he was just shocked. And I wanted to say, caught you. Yeah, well. You know, because it's like, what kind of a bedside manner is that? To walk in and not even shake hands or say hello to the patient or introduce yourself or anything? That's what happens when you get pressed for time and you want to solve the problem. 
and it's a terrible way to deal with things. But if you've got 10 minutes to see a patient and it's complicated and a lot is involved and you're not really good at explaining things, boy, that's setting the stage for a real problem in the relationship you have with the doctor or with your patient. Yeah, I, I used to have a gynecologist. Oh, God. <laughs> and sometimes while he was examining me, he'd take a phone call. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was really a weird <laughs> a weird situation. Jeez, that's just, that's just thoughtless. Or else you're at your doctor's and you're trying to tell them about your symptoms or something, and then they interrupt you? Uh, yeah. Well, about every 20... On the average, it's something like 20 seconds or something or a little bit more or less that you are talking and your doctor interrupts you. That's an average number that was done in the study that was published. That's that's really amazing. And does your doctor just order tests or medications and not explain what they're for? Yeah. Some people really do not know what their medications are for. They don't even know the names of them. When you come out of the hospital, sometimes they don't know. And some of it is because they're sick enough that maybe they couldn't be talked to because their mental status. Well, some of them don't even know their diagnosis. I know. And it's and it's not, not like just a few, but a lot of them, particularly when you're going to hospitals like county hospitals or you're getting Medi-Cal uh, treatment or now some Obamacare treatment, which is for some of the people who aren't, who aren't able to do some things because of their mentation. It can be a giant problem. But, you know, some people have a mental block. Like, for example, you have a mental block about doing anything to fix your car, right? Well, I don't like yeah, doing that. Yeah, you don't like to do that. Well, some people have a mental block that's comparable to that that has to do with anything to do with their health. Mm, for sure. And I also know somebody that's like that, that doesn't pay attention to her medicines and depends on one of her relatives to dish them out to yeah. her. It's too much, I guess, emotionally to deal with for those people. Yeah, and I mean she and she's on a whole page full of them. I've looked at them. She's on a whole page of medicines and she doesn't know what any of them are or what they're for or anything. Then there are people that you know, many people don't take responsibility for their health, but then the ones that do and they research it on the internet, they're often reprimanded by their doctors. The doctors right. don't like it or they feel threatened or something. Well, I think I know what some of the feeling is about. It's it's when you have a you're expected to to do something to treat a certain problem. So, for example, say somebody has a high cholesterol and you want to prescribe a statin drug because you think that that's what you're supposed to do. And they say, but what if I just eat a cup of blueberries? Oh, yeah. Okay, well, there you go. Okay, or do some other things to, to try and fix it. Well, it's it's difficult in that relationship to work out the best way to handle that because as a doctor, you want to solve the problem. But as a patient, you want to try something that's compatible with your with what's best for your health. And it may be that some of the side effects, which is certainly the case a lot of the time, are worse than the treatment. And maybe the statin drug isn't even needed. So what does the doctor who has an opinion about statins, who believes that they're like uh, like gold and should be used like everybody needs them right what is that doctor going to do when the patient says i don't want to take a statin now there's a job that that person the doctor has to do to try and figure out what else to do and it may not be so easy so and the doctor's also on a time crunch so he doesn't want to listen to that and have to explain it and there you go it's just sort of like i'm the doctor i went to medical school you're the patient you got this problem for god's sakes just take this thing because that's what you need well, okay, 
that's an opinion and it's controversial in a lot of circles. And the example that you gave about somebody going to the Internet is a perfect example of needing to be listened to, needing to be listened to, to work through what's the best approach. The other thing is, too, is that doctors need to know what to ask the patient because sometimes the patients don't always know what to volunteer, like, for example, side effects from medication. Sure. If you don't know that they're on that medication, it makes it difficult, doesn't it? Yeah, if the patient says, I'm shaky... Yeah. And the doctor doesn't know that they're on a drug that could make them shaky. They may be doing thyroid tests or, or Parkinson's reasons. tests or right or tests like that. Well, that's right. I mean, medicine is certainly a science, but it's also an art. And probably the relationship part of uh of of the of the healing is really important. I think that the appointment should be like a therapy session. Well, it it, it is a, and for both the doctor and the patient it's a therapy session because the doctor needs therapy to be able to listen to the patient, which isn't a routine in a lot of HMO situations. And the patient needs therapy because the doctor knows things about the treatment that the patient needs to know about. And if the patients are heard, they're going to have better health outcomes. And that's been shown. That's right. And also to keep in mind that good bedside manner is good medicine for a doctor. Oh, I think it's mandatory. And without that, it leads to all kinds of problems particularly uh, in situations where there's an important treatment that's being discussed. You've told me that many times you can figure out a patient's diagnosis by just listening to the patient. Oh, for sure. But many times a patient really does know what's wrong with them. Well, you've got to give them a chance to tell you. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's absolutely Not right. just quickly interrupt them and start giving them prescriptions. <laughs> right. Okay, it's time for a network station break. You're listening to Prescriptions for Health, and I'm Dr. Lynn Saputa here with Nurse Vicki. And we'll be right back with more Prescriptions for Health Radio and be talking about, is getting cancer just a matter of bad luck? Welcome back to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Saputo here with Nurse Vicki. Is cancer just bad luck? Well, it certainly isn't good luck. <laughs> That's for sure. A recent study from Johns Hopkins claims that two-thirds of adult cancers are plain bad luck due to random mutations in the genes that occur due to stem cell divisions. That's really something. It's just amazing how people can look at a statistical analysis and then say, that's how things are. This is how we get into trouble with our associations and correlations. And that one-third are due to the environment and inherited genes. They also claim that poor lifestyle can add to bad luck. Well, that's not bad <laughs> that's luck anymore, is it? That's a little more than bad luck. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. You know, maybe the researchers are just saying that because they don't understand it. And what's involved in dis-ease? You know, body, mind, emotion, spirit? We need to discuss the role of all these factors and how they contribute to cancer and other diseases. And we know that some cancers disappear on their own. We know that we can change our genetics. Yep. We've talked about epigenetics many times mm-hmm. with a healthy lifestyle. 
And Johns Hopkins researchers also said, get this one, that early detection is more <laughs> important than prevention. Oh, my God. Well, this, is, this, is, this article has raised a lot of fuss with a lot of people because it's obviously presenting a very skewed perspective that's mathematical and theoretical. When you, events are called random until the code is broken and we understand why they're like they are. And this really just highlights the dangers of making conclusions from associations and correlations and then applying mathematics to it. So this is a, an, ex, an example of really terrible science, in my viewpoint, because it gives the wrong idea to people that they're powerless and that they're the victims of what's going to happen uh, because of what's happening in their in their stem cells. Yeah, well, telling them, oh, just bad luck. It's like they don't have any control. Versus being a, a survivor and maybe feeling strong about that, you well, know? I think there are a lot of things you can do that change your risk for cancer that are not bad luck. And when you talk about lifestyle, exercise is huge in detoxification. You're looking at diet as a fundamental uh, uh, issue, a fundamental way that people can go astray with their metabolism and wind up at a higher risk for cancer. Or if they don't get enough sleep, I mean, when you don't get enough sleep, your immune system is 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 impaired. Miss five hours of sleep one night, and your natural killer cells, which fight viral infections and cancers, go down about thirty percent. Or smoking, or toxins in the environment. Oh, the epigenetics of cancer is huge, and to assign it a one third role in the cause of cancer is a, a little more than arrogant, in my viewpoint. Well, two thirds they say are bad luck. Luck. Well, let's talk about what's what is a mutation. What makes that occur? Well, a mutation is something that happens in a gene. Okay, that's in your DNA, and lots of things do that. Uh, X-rays will do it, so uh, that's one way. Uh, certain foods will change and affect your uh, the, the way your genes express themselves. There are fifty to one hundred thousand new chemicals in the environment that will change the genetic code. Uh, how you feel about things emotionally and spiritually has a profound effect on your biochemistry and physiology and on your DNA. Your genes and your DNA actually change in all these settings that I've talked about. So the epigenetics, meaning not the genes themselves, but what affects and triggers your genes to act in ways that will cause cancer is what we should be looking at as the primary thing. Well, the other thing that gets me here is when they talk about lifestyle being <laughs> part of bad luck. I mean, <laughs> lifestyle... Maybe it's bad luck if you grow up in an area where there's a lot of pollution. Well, life, get it that lifestyle way. is mostly a choice. I mean, I can understand some that you know, some people are, have problems and they can't really live a completely healthy lifestyle. If they're disabled, they might not be able to exercise enough or, uh-huh. you know, if... if I you live know. in an area where there's pollution or you're eating foods that are unhealthy that make you overweight and polluted. I mean, a lot of these things are difficult but uh, to resolve, but they can be resolved, and it's what we should focus on because cancer is a preventable disease. Why, all of a sudden, has the genetics of cancer changed from 100 years ago? And how can they say early detection is more important than prevention? Yeah, but back to what I was saying. Okay. When, when you're talking about... Why people didn't get cancer 100 years ago and they're getting it today, is that because their their stem cells were different 100 years ago than they are today? 
There's something that changes all that. And it's the same thing with your genes. Your genes maybe cause 5% of the cancers, maybe less, maybe 2 or 3% of the cancers. And those are inevitable living in an environment that's clean and when you have a healthy lifestyle. But when you look at the other 95 to 98% of the cases, it's because we've triggered genes in an unhealthy way to express themselves to produce cancer. And that's what's happening. This business about bad luck is bad thinking. Well, I guess you could say it's bad luck when it catches up with you. Well, yeah, well, but it isn't. I mean, but it's all a, of this to me is a narrow way of looking at things. Absolutely. They're not considering the whole thing. And also, why weren't breast and prostate cancers included in this report? Oh, well, that's, I mean, that's another little factor to add to it that I think is right. Uh, and they should have because a lot of that is, is certainly environmental. So they also left out the part that has to do with the role of spirit in getting any illness, not let alone just cancer. Do you think that when you have a problem at the psycho-spiritual level, that it has an impact on your body to make it react in a way where you come down with a disease that is supposed to provide you with a spiritual lesson? Another way to say that is, is physical disease the body's or somatic way of expressing psycho-spiritual dis-ease? And I think there's a case for that that should be looked at. I'm not telling you it is that way, but in my world, I like to look at all kinds of possibilities for what causes illness. And if you're trying to make sense out of how the universe works and how Mother Nature gives us opportunities to learn in different ways what we need to learn to become more whole human beings, the idea of spiritual illness becomes a reality. Like maybe if something's eating at you. Oh, sure. I mean, this Louise Hayes stuff is Mm -hmm. great stuff. I think that we need to pay attention to all aspects of what's possible. Why play with half a deck and say that just because we don't understand the role of spirit and healing, that we're going to throw that out and not pay attention to it because uh, we don't understand it. I mean, that's like a little kid who says, well, I don't like you. I'm going to take my marbles and go home. I'm not going to play with you. We're doing the same thing in all of science today by throwing that piece out, that role of spirit, our spirituality in our lives. I think it's huge, and to me, it makes some far more sense to look at the big picture and then make a decision about what's really important here. Is it just bad luck that you get any illness? Does God play dice with the universe? Does, he put you, does the universe put you at risk for things that are just bad luck? Well, some people hard, have that it's perspective. Hard, it's hard to know God's plan, and I know that there are many people that do get cancer, Mm -hmm. that end up saying that there are a lot of positive things that come out of it. Look at Steve. We have a friend, Steve, that lives in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And he has even written a book about all the positive things that he's experienced Mm. because of his cancer. He's grateful for the lessons. and, And what my philosophy is personally is that I hope to heavens that I can learn whatever it is I need to learn without having to get cancer. Well, that's the idea. But the see, the, the body is subservient, in my, in my thinking, to our spiritual needs. And if, we're, if there's something we're supposed to learn in this lifetime about our life and about uh, growing up spiritually, disease and pain are ways of helping us with that. So... I think that it's important to respect 
Lots of different ways of looking at things and not just look at bad luck as a random mutation. All right, you're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Saputo here with Nurse Vicki. And it's time for Vicki's final 2020 tip on foods for your skin. And when we come back, we'll be talking about do biopsies spread cancer and what are the unmet needs of cancer survivors? Foods are good for our skin, like almonds, for example. But I bet you would be surprised to know that almonds are not nuts. They're seeds. That's a surprise. And they're stuffed with vitamin E, which Mm. acts like an antioxidant that helps to protect skin cells from UV light. Hmm. So if you're going to be in the sun, take a little... Eat some almonds. Take some almonds with you. And carrots. Those contain vitamin A. Everybody knows that. But they're good for clearing up breakouts, and they help prevent the overproduction of cells in the skin's outer layer. And yum, yum, there's dark chocolate. (laughs) You know, it contains antioxidants, which reduce roughness in the skin, and they help also to protect against sun damage. And then hot green tea, that releases catechins, which are a type of antioxidants with proven anti-cancer properties properties that help prevent skin cancer. And then there's cooked tomatoes. Cooked tomatoes release lycopene, which is a phytochemical that helps eliminate skin aging free radicals caused by UV rays. So if you're going out in the sun, you might want to also eat some watermelons and some apples because those are also good in protecting our skin from the sun. And to drink a lot of water, I think most people know that that's good for our skin and not to overdo the alcohol or salt or sugar. And it's important to eat some healthy fats. Those moisturize your skin naturally. So you can eat flaxseed oil, fish oil, evening primrose oil, coconut oil, those kinds of oils. It's easy to change our way of thinking when we believe reports for so many years that cancer biopsies cause cancer to spread. And it turns out that it can happen on a very rare occasion, but biopsies causing cancer spread are now basically considered a myth, which is good news because fine needle biopsies can be a helpful diagnostic tool, providing valuable information in confirming diagnoses and in tailoring cancer treatment. Now, this clarification can help dispel some of the fears surrounding tumor biopsies and allow a tissue diagnosis, which enables the doctor to confirm that the suspected diagnosis of cancer is correct and to provide more appropriate and specific treatment. So what happens to the cancer cells that break off during a biopsy? Right, and they always break off. So you're always going to get the spread of cancer cells around uh, where the biopsy was done in the tissues. And so this seems to say the very opposite of what you're talking about. But they don't metastasize. They can't. Because what happens is when they're, they're outside of that tumor where they're growing and in the area around it, they don't have a blood supply nor the nutrients that they need to be able to grow. So they simply die there and they don't cause cancer. And the other thing you need to know about metastases is that when there is a metastasis, why do they always go to a single place? Why do they go to the brain or to the lung or to the lymph nodes or do they go to the liver or the bones? It's because there's a lot of biochemistry that's involved with setting up a home for where those cancers can live uh, that takes time and preparation. And that may take anywhere from days to weeks to months to years. And that's why cancer cells that are broken off during a biopsy 
just die there. So those wouldn't go off into the lymph nodes. If they did, what they don't they they can't survive. So the data shows because they're going out into a foreign environment. They're they're comfortable right where they are. They have the the blood supply and the nutrients and the and the environment that, that's required for their growth. It's a very tricky thing. And that's why it takes time for a tissue like the brain or the liver or the lungs to create an environment where the cancer cells can can grow. Well, this is really, really exciting news because this is such a helpful thing to be able to to biopsy the, the tumor. And people have been so worried about this. I mean, in 2004, there was this mm. study that we reported on on breast cancer biopsies Boy, that was and wild. how that would spread it. Yeah, well, this is a study that turned out to be wrong. And they looked at a, 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 probably a few thousand patients published an article that said that when core needle biopsies were done on people, on women who had breast cancer, that at the, at, that, that would cause a spread of the cancer in, 50, in, in a rate of 50% higher. I read that and freaked out. And this was published in Annals of Surgery in the year 2004. I know. I think you were like telling your patients not to get biopsies. What I was saying is do excisional biopsies. Don't poke it with oh, a needle. right. Because it, based on that, it made more sense. And I, I, st- I read the literature on this, and it didn't support that because it was the only one like that. So I called this person who wrote the article maybe 20 times, uh-huh. literally 20 times, to get a hold of that person to say, is this still something that you believe is true? And can you tell me more about how you did the study? Well, the reason this person wasn't answering my calls is because, as it turns out, they thought the study was flawed. And they no longer were worrying about doing biopsies of women who had breast cancer. Well, why did they report on it then? They reported at the time because they believed it was true, but after further investigation, they decided that they had made a mistake. But they didn't bother to write a note to the journal and say, we need to retract this article because it's incorrect. Terrible oh. thing to do. And that's why... I was irate that 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 had happened, and I had to think about changing the way I was practicing. And it also is kind of a warning sign that says, don't believe a single article that comes out. Wait until it's been time for it to be confirmed. Because the science... So can we believe this one, then? Well, we can't. I think that's right. This is just a piece of, of information that tells us that the biopsies... In these particular patients who had pancreatic cancer, the survival rate was higher in those people that had the biopsy. And they have some data to back it up. I, I have my reservations about this. And in general, you can't believe most articles that come out. Why? Because they're not good science. Most of the time, the people who are publishing articles have a conflict of interest. And when there's a conflict of interest then the outcome gets swayed, either in the interpretation or in the way uh, that their final conclusions are made. Sometimes the statistics come out, and then they make further assumptions from those particular facts that sometimes end up not to be so. Well, it's for the reasons that I just gave you. So you can't trust 90, 90, I'd say 97% of what's published in the mainstream journals. And that's a shocking thing to say, but... Don't shoot the messenger because I'm reporting what other institutions have re- have reported and put in the medical literature. Well, it's that, why Marcia Angel did the things that she did, and she was who? A doctor from Harvard 
who was the editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine, and she quit her job and wrote books about why she felt that the articles published in that journal couldn't be trusted. That's a major thing to say. And also, when we talk about the environment for the cancer cells, Mm -hmm. that reminds me of the story about Beauchamp and Pasteur. Yeah, well, that's right. So what is it? Is it the uh, environment locally that determines whether or not a cancer can spread or grow? Or is it because the, the, the cancer itself is so virulent and so aggressive that it'll grow and overtake you no matter what uh, your environment is like? That's a good point, Vicki. You know, just because a person is a cancer survivor, it doesn't mean that their problems are over. And although some do well after treatment, it can be a very traumatic experience to go through with a cancer diagnosis with treatment. Plus, the treatment can have lasting physical effects, which can impair a person's quality of life. Mm -hmm. And people are usually afraid that it'll come back and they get scans every few months, which can be nerve-wracking and trigger fear and anxiety. And and many have symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. So we're going to be talking about some of the lasting physical and emotional problems to help family and friends be more supportive of cancer survivors. It's really it's right. Like a person gets a clean bill of health and then everybody drops them. Yeah. You know? Well, see, the whole idea of, of most institutions is to deal with the cancer. Let's get rid of the cancer because that's the big problem that we worry about. And, and that's something to keep in mind because it's important to get rid of the cancer. But we're talking about people. And people who have feelings and are terrified by this big C, okay, the cancer, when they get it, it becomes something that is life-threatening in a lot of cases. I was talking to somebody after church on Sunday, and and she's somebody that has had cancer, and she had a scan a few months ago, and they and they called her and said, do you need to come right in for surgery? Oh, wow. And so now she was telling me it's time for another scan, and I'm like, I, I was, she said, and I was scared to death. Yeah. And then she said they didn't call me to tell me uh, whether it was good or bad. Isn't that something? And she was going on away out of town. And uh. so the whole time she was gone, she was worried about it. And so then when she came back, she had an appointment with her regular doctor, not the oncologist. And she told him that she would like to know the results because she was, like, so worried about it. Well, it's, it's thoughtless and insensitive. To leave people in limbo like that. But this time it was okay. (laughs) Well, that's great. So the doctor and the staff could relax, but what about the patient? So they need to tell them either way. Of course. That's what I'm trying to say. Not just tell them that they have it, but tell them if if they're cleared. Well, that's right. Well, that's right. And then to realize that some people, like, for example, with prostate cancer, they might have sexuality problems or impotence or incontinence. Mm -hmm. Well, that's right. So the physical problems of cancer are often long term and uh, they may not resolve over time some people wind up with neuropathies okay or problems with heart uh, disease because of the chemotherapy and and these are conditions that have to be dealt with over time as well so it's not like these are uh, things that are minor and they do affect quality of life in major ways that's and right. these people many times feel a loss of personal control it's like oh, this sure. is something that's happening to me right you know, that's why I think it really helps people when they get on a on a healthy lifestyle kick when they have cancer. You know, some people do juicing and all that kind of thing because it 
gives them a feeling of some control. Yeah, well, and then there are some people, like, for example, who have lung cancer that continue to smoke because they feel like, well, I already got it. It's hopeless. I'm going to give up and just do the best I can. Well, that's right. And many times their quality of life is is, uh, affected. Sometimes their, well, most of the time their their immune system is compromised. Well, there are a lot of things that have to do with with, uh, the fear that's associated with cancer. And the real question is, is how will you learn from this cancer to continue to have trust and faith that the universe is supporting you? Because they've just dished you out an illness that's a real issue that may take your life. Can you still have faith that you're being looked after and that there are lessons so important from this cancer that it was given to you as a gift? Now, there is a strange uh, way to look yeah, at it. Yeah, that's a tough one. At boy. the beginning, no, Thank hardly you anyway. any. You really, yeah, thanks for the favor. You know, you really don't want that. But as, as cancer goes on over time and we have a chance to think about it more, there's something different that happens maybe six months or three months or a year or two or five years later where you're looking at what did I learn from this cancer? And most people say a lot. And it changed my life and it made me a wiser, more complete person. Well, you know, mainstream medicine doesn't really deal much with the spirituality part of it. They no. focus more on killing the cancer. Mm-hmm. And, and well, that, you know, cancer frequently ages people. Many times they get other cancers. Mm-hmm. You know, besides some of these other problems that we were just talking about. But how does a person let go? How do you let go? Well, it's something that happens over time because initially it's a huge shock. And it's like, what did I do to deserve this? And everybody's scared of it. Right. Well, sure. Well, who wants to die? I mean, that's what that's about. That's the first thought that a person has is that they think they're going to die. Not that they will, but... Well, I mean, that's one of the things that maybe over time we learn that death is part of the life cycle and it's something if we can accept and don't have so much fear about could make a huge difference in how we deal uh, with illnesses that are like this. So just because a person's told that they're cured doesn't really mean that it's over. No, it doesn't because our resolution, okay, when we're doing things like PET CT scans means that we can detect a tumor that's about one centimeter in size or greater. But if we've got a one-centimeter tumor, which is a little less than half an inch, we don't pick it up. And so we say, well, we think we got all the cancer, and the tests show that you're clean. That doesn't mean that you don't have spread of that cancer with masses that are less than a little less than half an inch. You could. So we don't really know. And that's a real problem that takes us to a place where uh, it's uneasy. And that's when letting go and letting God becomes something to contemplate because it's really kind of important uh, uh, that we adapt the best that we can to what's happening. Well, we're at the end of the show, so... If you enjoyed today's radio show and you'd like to have more information on the topics we discussed in video and free access to more than 2,500 audio and video files, click on Health Headlines on the drsaputo.com homepage. And remember, a healthy lifestyle is the most powerful healer in the universe. So if you want to be well, pay attention to the style in which you live your life. Music.